Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Even the Score podcast, a podcast about soundtracks and scores for movies, TV shows, and video games. I am your host, Don, and I am once again joined by my co-host, Anthony and Jason. Hello to you both. Howdy. What's going on? Really? You're going to steal my howdy? And I, I thought I established howdy is mine. Okay, I'll go back to the Ned Flanders. How did they No, it's, it's really okay. I can share. We can share howdy duties. I can share. Because sharing is swell. Exactly. Hey, guys. It's season two. Whoa! We've officially made it. I think now that we've established ourselves, if you will. <laughs> we have made it to the big time where we We're are now here to tear apart, on... <laughs> tear apart that foundation and uh, reimagine ourselves all over again. I no. love it. We had 17 strong episodes. It's time to now break it down and rebuild it and just make it better. I'm really proud of us for getting 17 episodes done, especially during the pandemic. So this is not only an important way for us to reflect on what we've done, but yeah, like we've been talking offline, going in a bit of a more focused direction for some of the episodes seems like a a really fun way for us to generate some discussion, but also bring our favorite geeky things to the table that we can share with each other. Exactly. We had a really good season one. We had a bunch of really strong episodes where we're kind of fleshing out, getting to know one another and getting to know our styles and our interests. We had a really great summer masterclass series to kind of take us into a bit of a break. Now, exactly as you kind of said there, Anthony, it's time to take a look at what we want to do and with our conversations behind the scenes, really sort of focus in on things that we really want to talk about moving forward. And that's where we're going with with season two. What we're going to try and do is really hone in on a specific topic over the course of a season, but not adhere to anything too specific. We're not going to have a set number of episodes for a season. We're going to kind of flex here and there because we don't want to tie ourselves down too, too much. We just want to kind of give ourselves some parameters about things to talk about. And for our second season here, we're going to really focus in on one specific topic, which is genre study. I think we did extremely well with genre study in our first season where we were looking at things like horror and exploitation. And I think season two is really going to kick off with a bang here. And what we're going to get into is romantic comedies, a really interesting genre topic that's going to take us into very different places when we're talking about our personal favorites and really sort of talk about the enjoyment that we get out of rom-coms uh, but of course we want to jump into our regular segment here which is of course what you're listening to and i think i'm going to pass it over to jason first jason what have you been listening to since our uh last record oh man um no pressure uh so for me there have been some uh, newer things here and there but uh i think in large part it's been sort of revisiting certain albums but uh, since we've uh done our last record i saw this uh flying lotus album that i really wanted to grab um i have some of his others but i saw his like um, what i'm pretty sure is his first album and you know i kind of yoinked it gave that a listen which was pretty cool and then I've been a pretty big Anderson Pack fan um, since he came on the scene. What I didn't know, at least initially, when I first started listening to him is, you know, he actually had a group before he was sort of like, and I don't want to say this big thing now, but much bigger than he was when he first sort of stepped on the scene. Because I would tell people, oh, man, you got to listen to this dude. And they'd be like, who? And like, oh, geez, great. You know, then he messes around and starts winning stuff. And it's like, oh, that dude. And it's like, oh, OK, well, sure. So I, I picked up that uh, No Worries album with him and uh, this producer named Knowledge that, you know, I was just sort of grooving to. You could definitely see sort of where his whole style comes from with that, especially when he started doing his own thing. Yeah, all this room in the goodness. 
But aside from that, I had been taking the opportunity to like pull up some stuff that I just really love. Like, I think I must have mentioned the Roots album that I had been waiting forever. Uh, like, not their actual debut, but what I learned was the one that most people think is their debut because like their first album you could only get from their concerts. Who knew? But there's a track on there, um, in particular, a silent treatment that just sort of grabs me every time I hear it. And I was just like, yeah, I need more of that. Yo, I had a queen named Amina, height five seven, caramel complected, body like heaven. But last but not least, to wrap up my little section, I, I just got Lee Morgan's out, al- like one of his albums in the mail yesterday. So I was kind of stoked about that because I had none of his, uh, like his albums in my collection. And I think I must have talked about this in like a previous record. I'm holding this like uh, I can share this with the podcast listening audience. But my life, Mary Mary J J finally came out for a 25th uh, anniversary reissue. And I'm pretty sure I mentioned that to you guys. Like when that album came out, I was like grabbing that immediately because it was just... You know, I don't know what you guys were doing 25 years ago, but for me, I was struggling to figure out how to be an adult. And I think a lot of that struggle sort of (laughs) married up with that particular album really well. So I'm super stoked to have that in my collection. And even though I can't really say I'm actively listening to it now, I've listened to it a ton and I will be listening to it on the, you know, turntable probably for the next uh, several days to come. Jason, do you got a favorite song off that album? It... Probably has to. Well, I don't know. It's between my life and I'm going down. Um, mm-hmm. because I'm going down is how I actually learned about uh Rolls Royce. You know, you have that sort of dumb moment when you first hear something. And it's like, oh wow, this is so great. Like, and then you learn. It's like, oh, somebody did that before. Let me go listen to that. And like, you know, it's like, oh wow, this group is actually pretty amazing. But my life, I don't know. I mean, there's this thing with certain artists where it's like, you know, they have sort of like pre and post lives where it's like and for mary you know i mean i think anybody who knows enough about her as an artist knows she had it pretty hard when she started and this is kind of like i think the culmination of that really difficult life mary so there's a certain soul on these albums that i don't think gets matched even later on and not downing her other work it's just there's something there that just is really raw exactly you won't really need no one else Except for the man Cool. Well, I'll go next because I don't have much. I have been kind of taking our little bit of a break here really to heart and not listening to much of anything, to be completely honest. I have decided to kind of focus on just doing stuff around the house and projects and focus on things with work and all that. So for me, what I like to listen to when I'm doing things and trying to be as active as possible are podcasts. And one of the big influences uh, that kind of got me into being interested in starting this this podcast with you two has been the Rob has a podcast network. Rob Sesternino is a former survivor player. So survivor, the reality TV Mm, shows. Yeah. He, he played on a really early season. Then he came back for all stars and hasn't played since. So we're talking like in the first first dozen. No, sorry. I had a stupid moment because like when you said survivor, my head went to the band, I think, and not so much the, the, like the the television show show or whatever. And I was like, (laughs) and then you started talking some more. I'm like, (laughs) no, awesome. 
He was a guitarist for Survivor. No, he was a reality TV show contestant. So he uh, he's kind of parlayed his experience in the show into a podcast network. And he's really sort of focused in on doing uh, reviews of episodes of Survivor the same day that they come out live on TV. And he's been doing this now for, I think, 11 or 12 years, quite a while. And because of the pandemic, there hasn't been any Survivor on TV. So what he's been doing is doing a rewatch of all of the previous 40 seasons. And he's done it within less than a year's span. And he he's put out this kind of public vote for people to rank the seasons. And he's been going from the worst to best. And he's just come up to the last episode now, or the last season now. And it's kind of primed and ready to go for the next season. So I've been listening to these really sort of long-form chats about condensed season watching. And just the way that he can analyze it and the people he brings on. It's a really interesting take from someone who's played the game a couple times, who hasn't played it in like the new school era and i just really enjoy what he's putting out there so that's been my my focus for quite some time so for me it has been pretty low on music or soundtracks or scores i've the occasional listen to like the carol king's tapestry or hmm. uh, a good album to just occasionally listen mm -hmm. to. it's my favorite sunday album out like anytime it's a sunday afternoon and i'm like mm, i gotta put on tapestry it's so good and the wealth of songwriting that he she has done in her career i just learned that she wrote under the boardwalk which I had no idea, like what she has done in her early career and then to take the songs and then release her own album of it is unbelievably impressive. Not just, not, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but it's, it's definitely relevant given that we're talking about Carol King. Mm -hmm. Any of you guys watch Really Rosie as a kid growing up? No. The name oh, doesn't sound familiar. my damn. We, okay. In, <laughs> all right. Note to self. I'm writing that one down because we're going to have to. Oh yes, I totally okay. Because okay, I'm a bit, I'm a huge Carol King fan, and this is one thing I've never uh, heard from her. I haven't really heard this because I have heard that she did do this, and it's with Maurice Sendic, right? The guy who mm -hmm. did the Yes, okay, oh. I have heard of it, but I have never seen it or heard it. Uh we we got to do something with that at some point because even if it's almost like a real time reaction type thing because it's it yeah I think we found some bonus episode content for us coming right? up here to be doing some live reacts. The final thing that I had been paying attention to, I haven't really gotten into it, is uh, Rolling Stone magazine has updated their top 500 albums and top 500 songs of all hmm. time lists. And classically with Rolling Stone and the, the first iterations of the list, I believe way back in the early 2000s, hugely white male focused and very old school music heavy. Like they really sort of went in hard on Beatles, Bob Dylan, Beach Boys, and there were huge complaints. They've taken the time to go out to, I believe, hundreds of musical professionals. They're artists or producers, or they have some sort of connection to the music industry. Uh, I know there's a lot of reporters and critics in there as well. And they've redone the lists. And it's really interesting to see what has remained the same. Of course, Beatles are going to have some high spots on those lists. But what has really come up have been kind of more BIPOC artists, specifically black artists, really, and female black artists. I mean, we're seeing some really great um, changes in those lists. Of course, as we talked about with all of our list episodes, lists are arbitrary and reductive. Doesn't really matter much, but it's interesting to see what people are changing and how things are adjusting. So we're seeing more focus on people like Aretha Franklin, I believe. 
believe uh, Missy Elliott had a song in the top 10. And we're seeing Sam Cooke take the number two spot, which originally was held by, I believe, John Lennon's Imagine, which has dropped all the way into like the teens or even the 30s. So we're seeing changes and we're seeing more embracing of newer artists as well. I mean, with people like Outkast and, uh, and Missy Elliott, we're starting to see the 2000s albums start to get some recognition. Lords, uh, Royals got onto the list. Billie Eilish's Bad Guy has broken into the list. So we're seeing some some adjustments here, which is interesting. No, oh, that's interesting. I, I did see, and I, I was spoiled. I'm not going to spoil it here, but I was spoiled to what the number one song is. Um, And so I was uh interested to check it out. But for me, Rolling Stone is such a weird musical space that I don't always trust. Because you're right, there's a lot of bias that uh, exists in uh, specifically the Rolling Stone publication. Mm-hmm. Um, So it is nice to hear that there is getting a bit of a, a widening of the scope, if you will. It's just interesting to see a take. Like, I, I completely get that Rolling Stone has a very dodgy history with really accepting and embracing new and individuals who are different from what they are typically used to covering, which is just white male artists. But if they're going to release something, I'm going to take it a little bit of an interest in it, see how things have adjusted. It's a good jumping off point for me to maybe find some new artists I haven't heard or to listen to some things I haven't, haven't heard in a while. So it's nice to just go back to it. But yeah, I'm not going to put complete credence into exactly what they're putting out there i'll just say that i mean i think i I hadn't been historically following rolling stones list although i think i did look at it kind of recently within the last couple of years for a few different reasons given what i have always known rolling stone to be i didn't have i didn't take much exception to the list i just i took it kind of for what it is in a reflection of a certain perspectives ranking or whatever and i i I don't know those things don't bother me as much as i mean it's definitely good that they're being more inclusive and whatnot but at the same time it's kind of like there's so much music out there it's really kind of impossible to know it all and at a certain point you like what you like so it's not so much that rolling stone needs to amend what they're doing although it's good that they are it's more so that i'd like to see other sort of marquee sort of names putting out different perspectives that are taken with the gravity of a rolling stone magazine or something like that i I guess that's kind of what like you know i don't i don't necessarily need rolling stone to come meet me i just would like to see more things like rolling stone that represent my point of view for sure so and you know even with with these conversations i mean it's not exactly a new attitude but i mean at a certain point man i I listen to what i listen to so it's like i'm just gonna own that shit like if I don't know some of the crap you're talking about, not crap in a like, oh, that's, you know, like South Park, this music is crap sort of episode, but like the stuff that you really dig, it's not so much like, oh, um, there's something wrong with me. It's just I wasn't exposed to it. Maybe upon hearing it, I'd find it dope. But if not, say like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? So you're a tough guy, like you're really rough guy, just can't get enough guy, just always so puff guy. I'm that bad type, make your mama sad type. Anthony, what have you been listening to? I have been um, a mixture of podcasts and music, if you will. Um, So I actually ended up finding the Unsolved Mysteries podcast. (laughs) So Unsolved Mysteries obviously was the old show uh, in the 80s and the 90s. 
but uh, they've remounted on Netflix now. There's two new seasons. They're really good episodes. I really enjoy it. But the Unsolved Mysteries podcast actually just does deep little dive half hour episodes into like uh, individual cases or just individual things that happen. Sometimes it's a two part episode. But oh my god, those have been super fun. Just to throw on in the background and if I'm doing some work or I'm just kind of typing away, just listening to it like a mini little ghost story around the fire. Uh, I really really enjoy those. So that's definitely been one of my uh, fun little listening experiences. I've also really gotten into Casey Musgrave's new album. Pretty face It might get you far but still it can't replace The kind of real connection that I crave Casey Musgrave uh, did uh, Golden Hour and she won the Grammy of the Year in 2020? I can't remember. The album came out in 2019. It was the first time I heard of her but I went back and I just devoured her back catalog and I'm a country queen at heart. I love my Shania. I love my Dolly. I love my Casey Musgraves and the new album is considered her divorce album. So while she was hitting her musical peak and it's one of those like famous stories, you know, when an album just hits huge, but the artist's life is just completely falling apart. And uh, that's essentially what happened to her is that she had released one of the biggest albums of the year and she was getting divorced and her love life had crumbled. Um, and so she's released this divorce album called Starcrossed. And one of the most amazing things about it is, uh, and a lot of the reviewers were talking about this, is that it's primarily a lyrically focused, self-focused album. And so she doesn't actually mention her husband or ex-husband a lot. It doesn't really focus on what he did or, you know, there might be references to it, but a lot, port majority of the album is her actually emotionally processing the divorce. And so it's a really interesting uh, divorce album that's not full of hate and, you know, vile when you get like a really toxic relationship. It's almost like a, a mourning. And it's a really different type of album that I really am enjoying. I really, really uh, like her as a songwriter. But this album particularly, I, th I find it very fascinating what she's done with a divorce album. And then the last album that I just found a couple days ago from my friend Mike. I can't stop listening to it. And it's called Italians Do It Better. And it's definitely not what you think it is. Uh, it's a... <laughs> it is a album of Madonna covers. And so there is this record label called Italians Do It Better. And they have collected all of their artists, which are primarily like dark dance, synthy, 80s, this kind of like, I want to say like, yeah, dark disco or dark dance is kind of like the label I would give it. And so there are 20, or sorry, 19? How many tracks are there? Oh my God. 20 covers. And they're all Madonna songs. Some of them are holiday, you know, material girl, more mainstream stuff. And then there are some deep cuts on there. But my God, all 20 tracks are amazing. I've listened to the album probably close to seven times in the last week. Nice. Wow. I'm not... Well, uh, what am I saying? I'm a huge Madonna homosexual. Like I'll, I'll admit that openly right now to you. I, I am not ashamed. I'm a Madonna homosexual. She is a very complex and problematic person, and I completely acknowledge that. But as a female in the business industry, I really think she has like done some amazing things. Uh, and this cover uh, album is just phenomenal i'm just i'm so interested to see how people take her music uh which i already love but somehow make it even better 
can't recommend the album enough. I really encourage everyone to check it out. Even people who are like, yeah, I know Madonna and I like, like her big hits. I've played it for them and they're like, how is this better than the original? <laughs> so, yeah, that's what I've been listening to. Excellent. Nothing wrong with being a magisexual. <laughs> well, yeah, Madonna's kind of awesome. I'm, I spent a good chunk of my uh, pre-adolescent life listening to her. She probably, that Lucky Star video was probably maybe one of the first stiffies, man. That, that <laughs> like, you know, that, that may have... <laughs> for sure. Well, yeah. I can't say for sure, but yay, good for you! <laughs> <laughs> well, on that high note, we're, we're going to move away from what Season you listen two. to. Exactly. We're, we're in it. We're in it I now. It. Things are, things are changing. <laughs> Well, we are going to move away from uh, what you listen to. We are going to move into our main topic, talking about our rom-com favorites. Uh, And we're going to take a little bit of a break, and we're going to come back right after this. Well, all right, we are back from break. And as discussed up top, we are looking at the romantic comedy genre for the remainder of the bulk here of our episode. Um, So rom-coms are classically that tale as old as time. Boy meets girl, boy and girl face obstacle, boy and girl separate, boy and girl reconcile, happily ever after. And of course, literature has been a huge influence into this genre. We're talking about Shakespearean uh, romantic comedies going all the way back that have influenced the silver screen heavily. Um, And we're talking about a genre here that has spanned almost a century now. And we're going all the way back to uh, something like 1934's It Happened One Night, just to see how beloved the rom-com genre is. Audiences love to watch these movies. They're still going strong to this day. And I think that's what makes it a really interesting topic for us to to kick off our second season with. It's to really focus into uh, a really interesting genre because there's lots of things that you can do with it. And that's kind of the beauty of what's happening with the rom-com genre today is that it there are huge spins on the standard structure of these things whereas we're looking at different topics that don't typically get covered in romantic comedy such as something like knocked up where you're looking at pregnancy uh with a a non-married couple coming into play and that's kind of playing off that aspect of it the raunchiness within uh knocked up as well not something you typically see in the classic sort of rom-com genre which is fascinating to watch uh we look at um couples railing against uh, gender stereotypes we have a lot more focus on lgbtq plus rom-com stories which is hugely important Uh, There's more diversity in the leads and the actors. There's blending of genres when it comes to rom-coms. I think Anthony definitely knows a little bit when I talk about the zom-com genre. So zombie romantic comedies. Anthony, any uh, thoughts on that as a sub-genre here of rom-coms? Well, I think it is really just a uh, sign of the uh, evolving genre. And, uh, you know, obviously back in the day there was like, you know, a set of five or six genres. But then now, like, yeah, as you said, we have these cross-pollination movies where, yeah, all of a sudden zombies, which are traditionally a horror trope, um, are thrown together with comedy and you get something like Shaun of the Dead. 
Mm-hmm. But Shaun of the Dead also had a romantic plot in it. So all of a sudden you get this comedy, romantic comedy with zombies. <laughs> and that to me is just a natural progression, right? I mean, like, boy meets girl, girl fights zombie, boy and girl fall in love again. That sounds pretty modern. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, I think it's really interesting to see how genres break out and kind of all of a sudden produce a new sort of uh, type of film that really gets embraced by even a small margin of audience. For sure. I'm glad you explained that because when you said zombie uh, zomcoms, I was not thinking like Shaun of the Dead, although I guess I could see how that fits. Like, I literally thought you were talking about like somebody really taking zombies to like to the nth degree and giving them personality and having them fall in love. So there's one called Warm Bodies, which stars Mm -hmm. Nicholas Holt, and he's the young kid from About a Boy, and this is Girl Meets Zombie. Girl and Zombie start to grow closer because he doesn't eat her, and because of the emotions that are occurring between the two, it starts to activate his heart again, and he starts to get out of being a zombie so he's kind of love is the cure. It's the fifth element. Love yeah. is the answer. And it just that is what I'm I'm more thinking about when it comes to a zomcom. It's this idea that one of the main parties in the romantic relationship is a zombie. Though Shaun of the Dead is a great example as well, where it's taking a spin on the horror genre, twisting it and adding in a really significant love plot. And uh, it even was taken one step further, and a television show was created called I, Zombie. And it was starred a woman as a zombie who was a mortician. <laughs> and so she <laughs> she basically would snack and eat. And I was going like, to say, is that like takeout for a zombie? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> like... <laughs> and then in the show, yeah, she like navigates. Oh my goodness, he's so cute. Nom, 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 nom. The classic getting high on your own supply. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just to kind of sum up on zomcoms and romantic comedies, all of these have still that sort of general structure. We see relationships, we see love, we see breakups, we see reconciliations, all through the lens of huge, successful Hollywood movies. And I think it's a really important genre to talk about. It is one of those genres that has stood the test of time, has been able to adapt, and we've been able to see a lot of different elements within it. And there's there's a lot of rom-coms that we've already spoken about in the show. We've talked a lot about... Some of the the really interesting sort of romantic comedies that have good soundtracks or things that we gravitate towards. And I, I think it's going to be really fun to further the conversation on what our kind of favorite romantic comedies are. We gave ourselves some parameters. Obviously, I mentioned it happened one night going all the way back to the 30s. We're not going to do a historical sort of review of everything like a masterclass. We stuck to the 80s all the way up to the 2000s. And we decided to pick kind of our favorite movies within that time frame. I think without further ado i'm going to pass it over to anthony to take us through your uh, rom-com experiences so uh yeah romantic comedies are a bit of a i wouldn't say weird but it's a bit of a interesting genre of movie for me the reason being is i would consider romantic comedies to be quote aggressively heterosexual now I think, as you say, we've really seen a difference and a a spreading out of the type of uh, romantic comedies. And I'm going to talk a little bit about those because I have kind of found some of those along the way that I've really enjoyed. And particularly the soundtracks and the music that they use is really important to it. 
I think one of the first romantic comedies I ever remember seeing is Little Shop of Horrors. And I've talked about how much I really enjoy the, that movie. And it's a romantic comedy at heart. As Seymour and Audrey are, you know, navigating Skid Row and this monstrous plant is eating people. But in the end, Seymour loves Audrey and Audrey finds out that she loves Seymour too. And I remember that being a big part of the plot is that their romance kind of carried through. But it was a dark comedy. <laughs> There's lots of singing. And so my first kind of point of contact for romance was definitely a little bit dark. And it wasn't until Pretty Woman. I remember watching Pretty Woman in the late 80s or early 90s that I was like, oh, this is a romantic comedy. That was, I was like, a forming the idea of genres in my head. And Pretty Woman for me was really what I was like, okay, I get it now. This is a love story. And again, Boy Meets Girl, they encounter obstacle, they get together in the end. But what I think is really interesting about Pretty Woman, and it is a problematic movie, especially from a sex worker perspective, I really do feel it is a natural romantic comedy where some of the things that frustrate me about romantic comedies is when they make obstacles in the like the movie and it's just annoying so that one actually was a little bit of a realistic romantic comedy if you will um and it wasn't until later that i started to discover different types of romantic comedies and i remember sometime in the late 90s i watched the movie tootsie he auditioned for the female lead on a soap opera and became the hottest new actress in america and you know what no one knows. Tootsie was such a big change in the game for me because I wasn't out yet, but the entire plot of Tootsie, if you're not aware, is about Dustin Hoffman playing an actor who is very temperamental and very professional, and very strict, and he has a bad reputation and he won't get hired. And so one of the things he decides to do is dress as a character, as a woman, and he tries to apply for a soap opera. And he ends up getting it and becomes a huge star. And while in that process, well, doesn't he just fall in love with Jessica Lange? And, you know, through that traditional format of boy meets girl, they get an obstacle. In this one, the obstacle is the boy is dressing as the girl. <laughs> and their obstacle is, how are they going to resolve this? So I distinctly remember Tootsie watching it and being like, what an interesting spin on a romantic comedy. Because not only is he not doing the, the gender dress for the woman, he's doing it because it's a part of his own character. He's trying to navigate professionally. And then, it, oh, it turns into this romantic comedy. And so while it's playing with subtle issues of lesbianism, because there are you know scenes in the movie where... Dustin Hoffman dressed as Tootsie and Jessica Lange are having intimate moments together. And so it's kind of flirting with this lesbian themes that you're just like, oh, wow. Like, you know, it's it's never uh, demonized, but it's never celebrated. So I wouldn't necessarily call this a queer triumph because, again, this is a heterosexual love story using gender gender swap. And which isn't new. I mean, Some Like It Hot, I mean, think, is probably one of the more famous ones. But the Tootsie soundtrack, I think, is especially what takes it from just a fun romantic comedy with some gender swap to a really classic movie. <laughs> so Tootsie, I, uh, again, I would watch and I would really love. But one of the things I like about the music is it's very definitive 80s. There's lots of like saxophone solos. This is, it's come, it was released in 1982. So this is at the time when MTV has started and the video is becoming increasingly important. 
But you still have these artists who are established, but they're not video friendly. <laughs> so you have people who are musicians who are now being placed in a radio only zone. And I would really classify Tootsie as it wasn't video friendly. Like it wasn't something that the kids were like, oh, yeah, this is such a great fun thing to do. It was definitely much more of a top 40 adult contemporary hit. And so that's what I think of when I think of the Tootsie soundtrack is adult contemporary music that you would often hear in a doctor or a dentist's office. Maybe if you're on hold, you might be hearing some of Tootsie's New York jams. And I just love that. It's calming to me. Um, and I think it really plays a character in the movie um, with Tootsie, you know, being the popular, outgoing actress that she is compared to the volatile you know, male character that is when he plays when he's out of uh, Tootsie Drag. So yeah, I always found Tootsie to be a romantic comedy that not only has a great soundtrack, but it's just a different take on the romantic genre. Um, and it was a very popular movie. And to this day, Dustin Hoffman, I know, still like recollects like how that process and how the movie came to be is very important to him. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. What are you guys thoughts on Tootsie? So I think there's more of a story here that deals with you all than even the film itself, because you mentioned sort of quickly in passing that it came out in 82. And that kind of jibes because... I remember being a really, really tiny kid when, like, I kind of remember seeing, like, posters for Tootsie and, like, yeah, the yeah. trailer for Tootsie being a thing. So, to the extent that you were actually even on the planet at that point, um, <laughs> what brought you to that film, I would imagine, at some point later? Because I'm pretty sh I mean, because you guys are, like, what, about four or five years younger than me, right? Yeah, I'm turning 40 this year. I would have been eight months at the time of release. Of Tootsie. Yeah, okay, so I'm, I'm not like, so I'm not tripping because like when you guys no, no, are talking yeah, yeah. about this, so whatchamacallit, I'm like, wait a minute, I vaguely remember this and I sort of remember the premise and that being like a big deal at the time, but I was also like really young. Yeah. So I absolutely did not see this film at the time and nothing ever sort of made me go back and watch it. So I don't know if I have a whole lot to say about the film itself, but I am actually kind of fascinated by what drew you both to the film at whatever point you saw it. So I could probably go quickly. Um, my wife and I, when we were dating, we decided to watch a ton of movies that were on the American Film Institute top 100 mm. movies you have to see of yeah, all time. Yeah. Again, it's the listing thing that we were talking yeah. about with Rolling Stone. It's a good kickoff. Tootsie was on that first list. They have since kind of revised it a couple times. That was the only way I was going to see Tootsie. Like, I, I really didn't think that that would be something I would go back to. It was just because it was on the list. I watched it. And I enjoyed it. There's a, kind of a lot of gems on that list that came out that I, when I watched it, I was like, I really enjoyed that movie. I'm glad I did this. And Tootsie was one of them. And that was the only reason I saw it. Haven't revisited it since. And I haven't listened to the soundtrack. So for me, Tootsie is what I call one of my TBS Sunday movies. <laughs> So TBS back in the day used to have the best movie lineups on Sunday. Uh, and Tootsie, that's where I encountered it. Uh, and uh, I watched it on a Sunday afternoon. And then I probably went out to the video store next week and rented it. Uh, and I just, I couldn't get enough of it. I was like, ooh, what a fun little movie. 
But again, I think that was also, I, you know, I saw it at a time when I was like 16, 17, 18. Um, so I'm like at that point really diving into a lot of out there movies because I am starting to question my sexuality. I am starting to kind of wonder what's going on. So even though Tootsie isn't a, a, a gay movie by any means, the gender flip in it is definitely something I was attracted to. To be like, oh, this is such a... Like, I don't know why. I couldn't at the time. Now I have the language to be like, oh, I was interested in the gender fluidity of that story. And so that's where I think, you know, my interest in Tootsie definitely comes from. But uh, I think because, uh, especially at that time period, I was really getting into some, like, again, exploring different movies. And romantic comedies were never my number one. But I really do like strange movies. And so when strange movies line up with romantic comedies, I tend to get really interested in them. And so some of the, like, in the late 90s, there were some honorable mentions that I'd like to bring up at this time. And one of them was Ever After. Do you remember that Ooh. Drew Barrymore movie? Yes. And it's like a Cinderella retelling. Mm-hmm. Oh my, I watched that movie quite a bit because it was, actually, I would suggest that Disney needs to watch Ever After every time they try to do, reimagine one of their Disney princess movies because that's how you do it correctly. Another one was called uh, Big Eden. And this is a gay romantic comedy and it's probably one of the first gay romantic comedies I ever saw. And it's about a gay, successful gay New York artist who finds out his grandfather is dying and has to move move home to Big Eden, Montana. And he's got to help, you know, his ailing grandfather. And while he's there, he's going to re-fall in love with the high school crush he had. And so one of the notable things about Big Eden is it has a lot of old country music for the soundtrack, which is a really interesting play on, you know, old country masculinity and then using it for a gay love story. But one of the like interesting things about this movie is it exists in a world where homophobia doesn't exist. <laughs> so he moves from New York to Big Eden, Montana, and not once in this movie do they ever encounter anybody who is prejudiced or homophobic, and everybody in this small town is actually rooting for the gay couple to get together. I know that that's a quite unbelievable... <laughs> You know, but I would argue that all romantic comedies live in a world where things aren't always reality. So I would argue that Big Eden actually is a really successful romantic comedy, a gay romantic comedy. And then the other one that I've really uh, warmed up to is called Happiest Season. And it was released on Amazon Prime last year. Kristen Stewart. And how did you like it? Well, my uh, wife and I watched that, and actually, it was you know, it was really charming. And I, I, and there was a part of me that was just like, really, like you know what, good. This there needs yes. to be more of this. I, um, I'm really glad that that was your reaction because that's exactly what mine was too. I was like, what a a silly, charming, fun movie. And yes, there were issues of homophobia that were built into it, but it wasn't the defining part of the characters. And so I really found it to be. Again, a successful romantic comedy that kind of played with the notions of bringing your spouse home to meet your family. Um, and so I can't give that one enough. Also, I got to give a huge shout out to Tegan and Sarah because they wrote the most addictive Christmas song that has been released in probably the last 20 years called Make You Mine This Season. Make you mine this season. 
it came perfectly at kind of the peak of the Dan Levy assance as yes. well. Like, oh my God, with Shit's right? Creek kind of winning all the Emmys, it was great to get a spotlight on this movie because as you said jason it's important to have that movie out there and anthony as you said problematic sure yeah but it's nice that there is attention being paid to having lgbtq plus stories being told kind of nonchalantly it's not yes. the spotlight is on this while that may be a component of the movie it's just there's going to be dumb movies like that are made that fit into the genre stereotypes and fit into kind of these holes. Like it's just checking the boxes, but that's important because the more nonchalant it becomes, the more regularly it gets made and the more it gets consumed. Absolutely. Good point. And I think to bring me to my last romantic comedy that I'm going to talk about, I feel like the happiest season is an important benchmark in queer romantic comedies because it's released on a major streaming service a lot of people saw it. It was very well known and well visible. But I would argue that that movie would not get made and could not get made without a little movie called But I'm a Cheerleader. You don't even like to kiss me. It's, it's true. true. You don't have any pictures of guys in your locker. Just these. We're afraid you're being influenced by a... Honey, we think you're a... Lesbian. Mm-hmm. But I'm a Cheerleader came out in 2001, and it is a quintessential queer love story. And one of the things that I think is so progressive about this movie is that it takes place in a rehabilitation gay conversion camp, which already is a toxic space that is very triggering for a lot of gay people. <laughs> and so to situate a romantic comedy within that environment, I think is is a really big, it's taking a really big bite and you're really setting yourself up. But what I think is so fascinating about this movie is not only does it play with the notions of romantic comedy by having two lesbian characters fall in love and struggle through that, but it also looks at gender uh, stereotypes and norms and heteronormativity which is essentially the notion that all romantic comedies I saw growing up were between a man and a woman. And if there was any gender deviation, it was usually with, you know, um, a trans character that was usually revealing their truth. And then there was some sort of violence or retribution. So queer content within the romantic comedy genre has not been its strong point. So when But I'm a Cheerleader comes out in 2001, it's a hit with the gay audiences because... We understand what's going on. It's a campy, humoresque satire of what romance comedy for gay people could be. Not is, but what could be. And so a lot of uh, straight media reviewers didn't necessarily understand or get the concepts or what they were doing. But queer media did. And I think it's kind of cemented itself now as a really good example of how queer stories can be told to larger audiences. And incidentally, one of the characters in the movie is played by Clea Duvall, who's a very well-known lesbian actress. And she was in The Faculty. She's been in a lot of TV. But uh, she stars in I'm, But I'm a Cheerleader. And she actually directed Happiest Season. So, literally, she got her footing back 20 years ago when she was an actress, and she has now been able to start to create queer content that isn't satirical, that isn't campy, because that is some of the signatures of gay cinema, is like, it's very satirical, it's very campy. But switch that 20 years later, and now she's produced a lesbian uh, romantic comedy that is so poignant and charming and wonderful. So I really like to look back at histories, and I think But I'm a Cheerleader is an important part of queer romantic, uh, sorry, romantic comedy stories. And I'm really 
lucky that I was able to see it uh, when I was younger and I was just coming out because it really did give me a little bit of hope that I'm like, oh, you know what? My stories can be seen. I can see myself on screen. There are people out there who are making thing stories that are for me. And also the music in But I'm a Cheerleader is just phenomenal. Like the opening of the scene or the opening of the movie has the Serge Gainsborough song Chick Habit. It's an English cover. Um, which is technically written from a male perspective. And it's about a, a female singer being like, give up your chick habit. Like, I should be your number one. You got to give up your chick habit. It's interspliced with clips of cheerleaders bouncing up and down. <laughs> and so it's just such as a clever turn that you're just like, way to take a heterosexual song and lesbianify it and turn it into something so dramatic and campy. So again, not only is it a really progressive, fun, romantic comedy, but the soundtrack is just filled to the brim with some really great tunes. That's where I'm going to live off with my romantic comedies. I remember seeing Claire Duvall in a ton of different movies and TV shows back in kind of the early 2000s. And she always played the weird kid. Yeah. I don't know if it was just a visible aesthetic or if it was just that was the only way that Hollywood was trying to get her queerness across in, in movies, like in some sort of like way, like putting it as being the weird kid. But it's nice to see that growth and her arc going up right? to directing um, Happiest Season and, and she now putting. It. Oh, fantastic. Right? even so better like, what so incredible... like she's really putting exactly yeah. she's putting a really positive spin and now taking what she had probably experienced in the early 2000s or, or late 90s early 2000s and now spinning it into this should just be normal like let's just put this movie out here and, and really produce things that are appropriate for the lgbtq plus community and and make them feel seen and heard and not stereotyped or deemed odd or yes. weird or whatever kind of compartmentalized in a very specific role or trope within a movie or tv show so nice mm -hmm. it's a good list man mm -hmm. thanks it's pretty gay, but I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, hey, like we started talking in the beginning, it, or even like what you just said a few moments ago, it's, it's good to see yourself, however you identify, represented in whatever media you like to enjoy. So I, I just, I think that's personally awesome. For sure. I will jump in with my list. So I've had probably a, a hit and miss relationship with romantic comedies. I mean, for the longest time, I really didn't get into it because I really sort of focused on, well, I'm a I'm a cinephile, so I need to find like the classics and just go with the epics and the dramas and all that. And romantic comedies were just not something I focused in on. But things clicked right around kind of late 90s, early 2000s, where I just started to broaden horizons and start to focus more on relationships and getting into, all right, a really want to focus on just looking at all sorts of movies because they're enjoyable and there's lots of fun things to, to be had with the things that I'm watching so that's when I really started to get into romantic comedies and at that point I think I was more focused on what was coming out now and then it was later in life I would go back to the Tootsies or the Some Like It Hots or It Happened One Night and look back at the history of where these movies kind of originated from but my list I wanted to populate it with things that kind of just more impacted me 
on an emotional level. So it is kind of all situated in the early 2000s. And I had three that I wanted to bring up with one really big focus and then other two that I just kind of want to mention. And I'll start off with those. The first one I want to talk about is 2001's My Big Fat Greek Wedding. When Tula met Ian, (laughs) she found her man. I just want to spend a little time with you. And he found... Her family. No one in my family has ever gone out with a non-Greek So that movie, I think, is a really great example of a little bit of a twist on just your standard romantic comedy setup. And I like the cultural components that Nia Vardalos, the writer and lead actress in the movie, really brought out. The movie focuses on a Greek woman meeting an American guy who has no connection to the Greek Orthodox Church or no uh, connection to Greece. And of course, it's just sort of this classic, her father is saying, you can't marry outside Greek. Greeks marry Greeks. That's what you do. And it was just really fun to see that cultural play. And I think it was just, it was really well written. It was really well made. And I think it really sort of just leapt out as being something completely unique into a a genre that had just been sort of wrote and kind of cookie cutter up to that point. And I think people got it. People uh, watched the movie in droves. I think it, Mm -hmm. until The Passion of the Christ, it was the highest grossing indie film until Jesus took it down. And only (laughs) Jesus could take it down. That's the only way you could take down my big battery wedding. Christ. Exactly. (laughs) Him. (laughs) And I, I, people loved it. People embraced it. And they really sort of jumped on this, this different take on your standard story. And I think it was really fun. I think it's forgettable in certain senses, one of those senses being the music. There's really not much to kind of go off of aside from it's interesting to see their take on kind of Greek traditional music kind of played into the cinematic scope. You hear kind of flourishes, but with Greek instruments and kind of Greek patterns and timing. I think it's really interesting what they did with that. But aside from that, I don't think there's really much to go off of because it was an independent film. They didn't have the money to license. And so you don't get any licensed music coming into play. Fantastic story, a really fun cast, but I think in the scope of this podcast, a very forgettable soundtrack. So that was the first one I wanted to talk about. But did any of you have any experiences with my big fat Greek wedding back in the early 2000s or since? I can tell you that there is a scene in the movie where she has to go on a setup date with her family and with a guy that, you know, she doesn't want to date. And that guy was the owner of my gym. And I was attending the gym, and so when that movie came out, I was like, oh my god, it's the guy who owns my gym? (laughs) Anyway, that's it's a cool movie, I love it. (laughs) Good connection. Yeah, it's a personal story. Very. (laughs) Quite, Quite literally. For me, I mean, I saw it, I don't remember if I saw it on time or slightly thereafter, but I mean, I thought it was, you know, I thought it was cool. In a way, it reminds me of a lot of the films that, like, uh happen you know for for black folks where like there would be somebody getting married and then like perhaps the significant other would be of a different race or something and you know that would be a thing that gets explored a bit more in that film 
you know, like, so the one good thing is segregated as Chicago actually is, is that there's so many cultures there, Greek being a huge one of them, that all that stuff seemed, what's the word I'm reaching for? It wasn't all that special because it's like I'd seen sort of stuff like that growing up. I mean, I, I knew enough Greek people. I went to like spend enough time like in Greek town. Like, you know, I went to enough Greek restaurants because God damn, that food is good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's like a lot of those sort of mini scenes within the film. Like it wasn't that foreign to me. It was like, oh, yeah. OK, well, yeah, that, that's pretty cool. It's like, yeah, that seems to be what I kind of remember. But yeah, I, I guess that's all I'll say about it. I mean, because I kind of want to say a little bit more about uh, rom-coms in general when I start talking about mine. But my relationship with them, generally speaking, this is going to sound really bad. But I guess, you know, it. I'm not a cinephile. Like, I, don't, I watch a handful of movies when I'm interested in them. Is typically when I was growing up, I lumped in romantic comedies with just sort of romance films. And, you know, I mean, they were quote-unquote chick flicks that's just what they were yeah and a lot of times when i saw some of those when i was especially when i was younger it's not so much because i like uh, romance films or rom-coms it's more because the women that i like like them and i like women so there you are <laughs> like you know it, it's it, i mean I hate to be so reductive about it but no, i mean it's... that's ultimately what it came down to a lot of mm-hmm. times and yeah yep completely it makes complete sense. That's I, I yeah, that's what it was. For me, to kind of go back to the the first point there, Jason, where you were kind of surrounded and the movie is set in Chicago. And so if you're if you're surrounded by kind of the culture and you experience that melting pot kind of atmosphere, for me that wasn't what I experienced. Coming from in two thousand one, doing my first year in the biggest city in Canada, coming from a small hick town up in northern Ontario of 5,000 people. So I w- I'm first experiencing that. So I didn't have that sort of uh, opportunity to kind of just be comfortable with different cultures around me. So it was unique to see different takes and different perspectives, not only in real life, kind of just making my way through downtown Toronto, but also seeing it up on the screen and being and having access. I mean, for me, I, I don't think my hometown would get a movie like that in our theater because we had one screen and we typically saved it for big action films. So yeah, I think that was definitely one of the big experiences for me in in getting to know my Big Fat Greek Wedding is because I was kind of experiencing multiculturalism and and melting pots and bigger centers and having access to all these communities and experiencing Greek food for the first time in my life just through connections with my, my friends and kind of just experiencing the culture in Toronto. The second movie I want to bring up just really briefly, because I think it it's probably a forgettable part of my list, but I, I love it. I don't know why it kind of connected with me, but I just do love this movie. It's 2005's Just Like Heaven. DreamWorks Pictures presents the story of two people finding each other. I'm sensing some pretty intense feelings she has for you, bro. Really? Between the here and the hereafter. I think if you could ever really touch me. I might wake up from all of this. So Reese Witherspoon and Mark Ruffalo. Uh, Reese Witherspoon plays, I believe, a resident, a medical resident in a hospital who is just working her butt off and she gets into a car accident. And then you kind of cut a little bit a couple months later and you see Mark Ruffalo who's dealing with a loss of his wife and he's looking for a place in San Francisco finds this apart this fantastic apartment and as he's occupying it poof there's this woman there's Reese Witherspoon just kind of chastising him and and it find you find out that she's in a coma and he's trying to help and it's just almost this ghost story and then 
et cetera, et cetera. You, I'm sure I don't need to finish it because if you haven't seen it, you can finish it in your mind because you know what rom-coms are like. But I don't know why it hit me so much. It's just, it's so fun and enjoyable. And I like the kind of weird ghost story aspect of it. I think one of the big components might be John Heater, the actor who played Napoleon Dynamite, was just coming off of Napoleon Dynamite, a huge hit the year before, and here he is in this movie, so I think that might be a component. Uh, but it just, it felt different to me, and I don't know why, and I enjoyed it so much that my wife and I rewatched it just a few weeks ago, and it still brought a smile to my face. It was really pleasant. And to kind of take it into the soundtrack part of it, there's this song called Colors by Amos Lee, who I think has a really interesting career trajectory, and it was it was really big because the the song was pulled into an episode of Grey's Anatomy. It was utilized in this soundtrack, and he opened for Bruce Springsteen, which launched his his I think second or third album to number one. But then it like immediately dropped off the charts. It felt like it was this really he was a shooting star basically. He burned really bright but he burned really quickly and then just kind of broke up in the atmosphere. But the song seems to work for this movie. It's it's really sort of melancholy and it's he has a really great voice and it's simple and it fits the storyline here, but it's just a really sort of stereotypical rom-com with a bit of a twist here with the ghost story. But of course we have those same beats play out and it just hit me for some odd reason. I really did enjoy it. So that was kind of, I wanted to just mention just like Kevin, it's I'm sure somewhere streaming where you got it if you haven't seen it go out and check it out because it's just kind of a fun sort of 90 some odd minutes and i think it's just a an enjoyable little flick there to get into either of you have any sort of interactions with just like heaven mm, i feel mm. like i watched it on a dare Oh, hey. <laughs> <laughs> like, because I definitely, uh, romantic comedies are never the first one I'm going to reach for. Like, I'm never going to be like, oh, yes, let's go check out that new movie. So I definitely remember the my first thought thinking when I saw the trailer to be like, oh, my God, she's a ghost. I want to go see it. <laughs> but uh, then I was like, oh, no, I don't want to actually pay for it. And then I'm pretty sure somebody like had it on DVD or something like that, or it might've been on TV. And so I feel like that was my connection to it. Yeah, I can definitely say that I watched it and it's definitely not something I'm going to go back to, but I do remember the chemistry between Mark Ruffalo and Reese Weatherspoon being very, very enjoyable. Yeah, on this one, I got nothing other than a, a wealth of appreciation for Reese Witherspoon and, you know, the stuff that she, the, some of the other films that I did watch that, you know, she was a part of. But um, no, I can't say I watch this one maybe at some point i think at a minimum if i see this an opportunity to watch it i'll probably take it just because but yeah no i got nothing no that completely understandable like i said it is one of those it, it's probably the one on my list that is the most sort of forgettable or passable but yeah reese witherspoon is a powerhouse especially when it comes to the rom-com genre but i mean she has done so much since it, it's been a great launching point and i think kind of getting back to your comment there jason that these were always seen as chick flicks these are fantastic launching points for a lot of amazing actresses to kind of 
be kind of inundated in the culture in, in a specific way. Sometimes you can get typecast, but a lot of these actresses were able to break out. I think if we look at people like Reese Witherspoon and Sandra Bullock, and there's some great actresses who are now become like Oscar winners and real sort of drama character workers now. I mean, they're, they're doing fantastic things out of what they originally started from, which is the romantic comedy genre. The last one on my list is what I really want to focus in on. I'm not going to take up too much time, but there's a huge sort of musical component that really I love about this movie, and it is 2002's Amelie. So we're talking about French film, Amelie, very quirky, very sort of pixie-esque, very fun, rich saturation and color in the movie. So we're, it feels, as you mentioned, Anthony, like it's in its own world. It doesn't exist in the France of our reality. It fits elsewhere, which makes sense because, I mean, she sees things move, like pictures move, and she's doing whimsical things. But I love this story. I love this take on the romantic comedy element of it because it's not so much her explicitly falling in love with a this other guy, this guy in the movie. It's almost like she's falling in love with her community and the people around her. And it just so happens that a byproduct of her doing better with her life and feeling better about her life is that she finds love in a really sort of serendipitous and, and interesting way. But for me, what really takes it to that next level with Amelie is the soundtrack. Soundtrack was done by a guy named Jan Tiersen. He is kind of a, a musician who is not known for scoring movies until Amelie, and then he blows up. And he kind of does some really fun things with your sort of typical sounding sort of French things, lots of accordion, sort of slow. He, he plays with tempo and all that, but it's a really fantastic soundtrack that uh, was nominated for an Oscar and I think still lives on as being really iconic and epitomizes Amelie to a T. Like it really sort of fits in with the whimsy of the movie, with the fun of it, with sort of the escapades that Amelie and the other characters get into. There's a really interesting melancholy to the film because, of course, with one of the beats in romantic comedies, it goes up and then there's a separation or there's this this obstacle between the two love interests. But I love the music. I've listened to it constantly. It is on my in my CD case and it's in the CD player a lot. <laughs> But I think it's interesting what has happened kind of post-Amelie with Ian Tiersen that I, I really sort of focus in on. My wife and I really sort of bonded when we were first dating over Amelie. It was one of the first movies we saw as a couple. And what we did is um, my wife went to um, university in Quebec, in Montreal specifically, and we were going for a visit. And it just so happened that Ian Tiersen was going to be performing in Montreal no with his oh band, Dust Lane. But we didn't know that he was performing with the band. We thought he was going to be performing the Amelie soundtrack because it's it's the only thing that we knew him for. And he's he's up there with his group and they're playing this amazing sort of almost sort of new age rock music, really sort of funky and almost prog rock, very sort of concept album style. And at one point, somebody in the front row must have said the name Amelie to him like, hey, play this song. 
And he just kind of shrugs it off and goes, it's just a name. Like it, that means nothing to me. And it was, it's interesting how he would be so associated with this one romantic comedy soundtrack and have it probably sort of plague him wherever he goes now. But while my wife and I were there for him to listen to the Amelie music, he blew us away with his actual music. And it was amazing to kind of get to experience this artist now outside of what I knew him as, which was this composer for this movie that I loved into this musician and this established individual. And I'm sure it's something that he gets all the time, but it must be that double-edged sword to make this amazing soundtrack, to be known for it, but then to try and, and get yourself away from it, which I think, again, we kind of talked about that with romantic comedies and actresses being sort of stereotyped and put into this specific sort of formula. Hard to break out of that, but the music for Amelie is amazing. I highly recommend if you haven't seen the movie, go out and see it. Subtitles, I, I get it. It's it's sometimes a, a, a labor, but it's a labor of love in this case. It's a really lovely movie that I really do encourage everybody to go back and see. And and I actually did a I did a podcast called No Highway Option, where um, guests um, are asked to look at a movie in comparison to Vin Diesel's The Pacifier. <laughs> so hello <laughs> to the No Highway Option guys. There, I watched The Room, the Tommy oh, Wiseau yeah, movie, yeah, yeah. and we compared it to Vin the Diesel's Pacifier? The Pacifier. It was sure. a struggle, but it was a great I conversation. Would love to download that and listen to it at least three times. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what I decided to do is, it looked like they had done a lot of sort of campy movies in comparison to the Pacifier. I offered up Amelie. I think it was that good to sort of compare this Oscar-nominated film to Vin Diesel's amazing epic that is him as a military nanny. I would definitely agree with you on all that. I Salem and I have bonded over Amelie's soundtrack very early in our relationship. And it was really funny because he, uh, because Arabic is his first language. And so even when he was trying to describe Amelie, he couldn't pronounce it correctly. And so uh, like he was like, oh, it's this French movie. It's like uh, Emma, Emma. I'm like, Amelie! <laughs> <laughs> um, so yes, good choice. I The soundtrack is just absolutely gorgeous mm -hmm. and i when you were telling that story about going to the concert i get i was cringing a little bit because i was like oh no he's gonna be one of those people that doesn't like their most popular thing oh. and then he's gonna be like awkward about it and so luckily it sounded like he was like oh yeah whatever that was just one part of it but yeah i think that's really interesting that you got to see him live mm -hmm. um and it's always a really different experience especially when somebody who's worked in soundtracks to watch them live not necessarily doing their soundtrack music so exactly that's a really cool share thank you I'll jump in and say, unfortunately, I this was not on my radar either, the movie or the soundtrack. I'm, I'm kind of uh, curious about both now for different reasons. The one thing that resonated with me with that story is like you seeing uh, the guy in concert, Jan, and I, I sort of cringed from the other like i don't i don't know about his body of work or you know how it compares to the soundtrack and which one's more popular but i can only i like i cringe from the perspective of sort of a wannabe artist and dj like somebody just going up there hey play this and yes. like you know and like asshole like i prepared something specific for you just shut up and enjoy it so I, you know, I, I can relate to it on that level, but I can also kind of imagine, depending on how entrenched he was with like his band and stuff before, or after doing the soundtrack, that could be kind of grating too, because it's like if the soundtrack is truly the thing that he's best known for, 
it's like yeah but like i had i mean that was something i sort of did on a whim it's like it's great that it blew up but like this is what i really care about and like screw you all for not caring about it too sort of things anyway i i digress but i i, I you know i can relate to that on that level i just i, I kind of felt bad for the guy in the band because i could just imagine some really loud hopped up uh on yeah. alcohol asshole in the front row like hey play such and such yes. yeah. like dude it is essentially like somebody yelling out free bird at a concert yes, that's the one song i was thinking of i was like i know play free bird that's what it was play amelie <laughs> yeah, and, and he was like... he was very nonchalant with it he just kind of shrugged it off it's just a name it's just a name it means nothing and he just yeah. launched into a next the next song but yeah i'll have to check that out i mean because Hell, I watch anime, so I'm not, you know, I'm not going to turn my nose up on some subtitles. And if I could get through Pan's Labyrinth, which I hated, uh, at my wife's bequest, I I could check out this film if I uh, see it somewhere between Hulu and Netflix or something. Jason, how about your list? But the films that I'm going to talk about sort of resonate with me in like completely different ways. Um, actually, you know, because you guys had done sort of like some honorable mentions, I'm going to mention one that I absolutely never paid attention to the soundtrack. And if it has a soundtrack, I don't know that I want to pay attention to it. But I really did love the film from maybe the first time I saw it, even if I didn't recognize it was a rom-com. And that's going to be The Princess Bride. Uh, um, excellent. I, I, you know, nice. I mean, that being sort of the whole medieval Robin Hood sort of spoof yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I everything that was in it is what I expected. But I mean, it was such a funny, like, it was just a charming film. And it's one of those films that I saw really, really early as a kid because it was always on, you know, some of the, like, the local channels, like, whatever. And it was just, it was funny, you know, and I mean, gosh, a a chance to see Andre uh, the Giant actually in sort of, like, (laughs) like a character, you know, like, seemingly appropriate character. Just everything about that film was just so charming. Having said that, though, if that film has a soundtrack, there's no part of me that would be like, oh, yeah, I got to go play some of that. I mean, cause just because it's not like all the music in the film is what you would expect of that type of film. But it's nothing really like I, I don't remember there being anything that's like, yeah, I want to listen to that more later on. But I, I think that definitely gets a nod. But one of the films that I'm going to talk about kind of first, and it it's interesting because I like I tried to look in some like a. Uh, list of rom-coms to see how often it would come up it doesn't really get much of a mention which i think is kind of tragic because i really i don't know something about it resonated with me. well actually i know what it is that resonated with me high fidelity is one of those films that i just find really really charming rob gordon has a successful business and a dedicated following i used to go to the double door to hear you spin you were unbelievable but when it comes to dating hi hi is this penny hardwood hi caroline He's still searching. Are you in or out, Rob? I'm sorry? Are you in or out, Rob? I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. For the right woman. What's your I mean, name? hell, the guy is a record store owner. Okay, that's the first thing. He DJs. Okay, that's number two. It's set in Chicago. Three. You know what I mean? Like, it just reminded me of everything that I sort of liked about the scene before I left the city. I mean, like, you know, shout out to Clark Street, where, like, there were so many independent sort of record shops, and you could go sort of, like, major crate digging. 
which you know in hindsight I, kind of is a bit of sadness for me because when i was there still like cds were still kind of like the thing and it just didn't have the same feel as going to shop for vinyl like i never bought any vinyl as like a, a young adult teenager sort of thing because i didn't have the means to play it and it never even occurred to me with cds like being the new hot thing like oh yeah go buy a record player i mean i guess it would have been tremendous foresight in retrospect but you know i i just wasn't there but you know in that film and i don't remember who sort of suggested that i watch it i'm pretty sure i didn't see it in theaters it was like after the fact but you know it was just and oh and he always talked about playlist throughout the film you know i mean there was there was a playlist for everything and even if i don't say that enough i often think of my own playlist as i'm going through certain things like you know it's um i'm well yeah it's like i'm sort of constructing these things or like you know this this song really punctuates this moment and i don't know all of that sort of in that package and then john cusack being sort of like a phenom in not just rom-coms but like all the films around about that time period where he was uh starring this and there was just there was a lot to like about it and the soundtrack is you know, there's some stuff that I wouldn't na- naturally listen to, but some of it was like really pretty cool. You know, I was reminded of that as I was like trying to listen to it ahead, preparing for this. Um, there's one song in particular uh, that sort of just really grabbed me. And it's like, it's, you know, for using a device that isn't all that commonly used in songs, like uh, I'm wrong about everything. Like if you listen to the words on that uh, by John Wesley Harding, it's like, Every single line is sort of like, uh, you know, like a, a play on. I, I just, I really dug what he was doing in that song. And I thought that I was right, but now I know I'm wrong about everything. I think that I can say. Like just the, the soundtrack, it's it's a pretty cool vibe, and it's something that I can't find physically. I don't know the last time was pressed on vinyl, but that's not like, I mean, I guess I could hop on Discogs or something like that, but it doesn't seem that accessible. And then like, you know, even the the prices for CDs are pretty jacked up. So, and it's like MP3s and everything is cool. I guess one day we'll have a, a, a kind of more of a conversation about uh, sound quality or whatever, as it relates to some of these songs that we're trying to play. But there are certain things I just don't want to buy MP3s for. And I guess this sort of fits in that category. It's kind of like, yeah, but I think I'd be losing too much information and in like, you know, the way I would be listening to this. So all that to say that I, I just I thought that that film was really pretty cool and relatable to me and something I even I still think about from time to time, even if it's not like, you know, the say anything film and the iconic, you know, beatbox above the head, you know, what I mean, like, I just I, I still think it's a really cool film. And, you know, obviously, a lot of other people felt that way because they did the reboot with, um, uh, Lisa Bonet's daughter later on. Um, Zoe which, Kravitz? Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, I mean, cool. I actually never saw that at some point. But I, I because it's on Hulu, I know I could at any moment. So it's like one of those things where it's like, yeah, one one of these days I'll do that. <laughs> well, I, I'll get around to it. But I, I it's just a, a pretty cool film. And so I don't know if you guys have any sort of connection to that particular film, but I'd love to hear it. I think you use the word charming to describe it, and I would 100% agree. I think there's a charm in that movie that he is a dick. Like, the main character is a dick. And so I think that, to me, was always a little hard to watch. But there are so many 
lovely, earnest moments in that movie when he addresses the camera. And I really enjoyed that movie. I think it was one of those things that I don't really come back to a lot. But it, you're right. It is such like a, a fantastic movie. Um, and so I'm really glad you chose it because I think it is such a twist on the romantic comedy. Like the fact that he's detailing all of these breakups and that is such a real world experience that I think that's what makes it so earnest and genuine. Also, my story is uh, right after High Fidelity came out. John Cusack was in Toronto uh, filming for the movie Serendipity, another romantic comedy. Mm -hmm. And I literally ran into John Cusack on the street as I was coming out of George Brown, uh, which is a college in Toronto. And I did not realize he is like six feet, six inches tall. Like he is super tall to the point where I didn't like, I almost like bumped into his belly and then I didn't realize it was John Cusack until I looked up and I was like, Oh, sorry, John Cusack. <laughs> and it was, he was super nice about it and he was very polite, but it was so funny. Cause I was just like, what? what? Why are you so tall? <laughs> wow. I had no idea. And I think the wow, that's interesting. Cause I think all the films I've ever seen him do a really good job of not making him seem particularly right? tall mm -hmm. yeah like he just looks like an average height person so it was definitely movie magic in reverse <laughs> so my experience with high fidelity is a little bit diff different i hated it from the first time i saw it really I, I i had a big issue with john cusack and i had a big issue with jack black mm. i did not like the energy they brought to their movies at the time and i don't know if it was just what i was huh. experiencing when it first came out i have since gone back and rewatched it and said, this is, yeah, this is pretty amazing. Like, I, I understand what I was missing at the time. I have to do that with several movies. I'm yeah. not a big Lebowski fan. I know people oh, love the movie. I see? hated it when I watched it. But I haven't seen it since I was probably in my late teens, early 20s. So, High Fidelity was one of those. Like, I just, I did not like it when it first came out. Going back to it, though, it speaks to exactly what I like about kind of that sort of genre that movie i love the listing i love like the top five yeah, yeah, yeah. like this and and then his record collection being able to pull references and know exactly where he wants to go to to kind of link it to what he's experiencing i mean that's kind of what we're doing with what we're doing here like yeah we, yeah we connect music to emotion we connect music to certain periods of time and i think he the way he was doing that in the movie is so impressive and i love a reorganization so when he's <laughs> kind of taking apart his collection and he's going to sort it by i can't remember if it was like by year by mood or whatever it was i was all for it so hmm. i i definitely got back onto the the high fidelity train in my second rewatch which was only i believe earlier this year in preparation kind of for for i think what we were eventually going to talk about so i'm on board and i think i'm going to have to do that with more of john cusack's film because i didn't mm. enjoy i didn't like gross point blank i haven't seen say anything in years and years and years so yeah i'm gonna have to do that but i'm on board now and i completely see what you're getting out there jason huh interesting mm -hmm. but i mean you know i mean we are who we are at the point in times we are. So exactly. how about that? Well, and the last one kind of takes that even further. I I, I kind of like I didn't want to be all heavy and sort of whatnot, like nerd, like sort of nerd out with this. I went in the direction of something that I just really found funny. Um, and obviously a lot of other people did, too. The wedding singer. Um, yes. Oh my you know, goodness. I. He's more than a legend. You are the worst wedding singer in the world, buddy. Well, I have a microphone and you don't. So you will listen to every damn word I have to say! The 
wedding singer. I said hip hop. I hip it to the hip to the hip hip hop. You don't stop the rock to the bang bang boom. You say up drum the boom to the rhythm of the boogie the beat. I can't say I can remember what I was doing, but like the first time I saw the trailer with like the the older woman uh, doing rapper's delight, like I was like, yeah, okay, sign me up. I'm, I'm hooked. Like I gotta see how what the context for this particular moment is. And you know, I mean, and Adam Sandler and uh, Drew Barrymore, I mean, they have a lot of chemistry together, obviously, because they went and did lots of other things later on. But it just, I don't know, like I, maybe also the DJ mean sort of like oh yeah, this was kind of like the world before even DJs were like more commonplace. It just sort of resonated with me, I think. But also, it's 80s music. Like, Mm -hmm. I I think more than, you know, I don't know what the Tootsie soundtrack actually sounds like and how much it pulled from like the 80s music at the time, but there's just something almost universally accessible about the music from the 80s. Like, I don't care where you come from, whether you're straight, whether, you know, you are somewhere in the, the, I can't think of a single word to combine all the other things that aren't straight at this, basically. The the Um, sexual spectrum. The the, the sexual (laughs) spectrum. If you are white, black, I, everybody I knew, and maybe this is a product of where I grew up, like everybody I knew in the eighties was pretty much all about everything in the eighties. Like it's just, it was good music across the board and a lot of people have fond memories of it. And that's kind of where I fell in. So all the music that they played throughout the film to sort of punctuate different moments. I mean, the, the culture clubs, the, like all of that, like it just, it's good. And it just sort of brings back like happy moments. Like I can watch that film again right now and just sort of be like, yeah, that that's good times, man. Good times. Do you really want to hurt me? Do you really want to make me cry? Precious kisses. And you know, and then like when he uh that song that he launches into, and I hope I'm not pulling this from another film, but like cuz the Drew Barrymore's character's name was Julia, right? Yes. And, and she that, was going to be Julia Gulia. Julia Gulia. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that was the whole thing. And like even that, even that song that he made up, kind of on the spot about Julia or what, like all that stuff was just so freaking. Yeah, yeah. It just, it's, it's cool, man. So the wedding singer, I think, was a vibe to me, and it's one of those things where I think I, if I do ever see that on vinyl, I'm probably snatching it just because. I have a lot of those songs in other formats now, but it's just putting them all together in one place is just a, it's a good time um, to be had. And uh, yeah, I think that's all I can really say about it. It's just, it's in and I like the fact that there were lots of really popular songs that were pulled together, but it doesn't feel like it didn't feel like pandering either. Like it just really captured that moment in the songs from that period well i i I guess that's kind of all i could say about that the wedding singer is the most universally loved adam sandler film for very good reason i think the story is great and the music component is fantastic and you nailed it jason when you were talking about how the music didn't feel pandering i left the simpsons when i started to feel like the simpsons was just using music to use music not for any sort of relevance into the story 
the early seasons of the Simpsons utilized song and their own, their own unique individual songs, but also licensed music extremely well. And I think the wedding singer blends it so perfectly. Like it's, it's very referenced by the characters, whether they're singing it directly or like they're referencing it through conversation or whatever. Uh, But I think it's used perfectly in there and it just encapsulates everything good about the eighties and the music scene. And of course the wedding scene just seems fantastic. It's the perfect sort of space to demonstrate ridiculous hair, ridiculous costumes, (laughs) amazing, just sort of performance, like performative elements that people had to go through in order to entertain when you didn't have, like you said, Jason readily accessible DJs, or you could just put mixes on your iPhone and play that through the speaker system. So it's perfect. The cast is unbelievable. Barrymore and Sandler are great. It's Adam Sandler doing his thing because, I mean, obviously from his SNL days, he was known for being the musical guy and now kind of putting it into The Wedding Singer after some movies that are kind of hit and miss, depending on who you are. Like he had some great, a great run up to The Wedding Singer, but I think The Wedding Singer is the peak of the mountain for me. I will agree that the soundtrack and the movie are amazing. As a uncomfortably confident Adam Sandler fan, I will not say that The Wedding Singer is his crown jewel. Uh, for me, I would actually say it's Little Nicky. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I, I, I unfortunately watch a lot of Adam Sandler, and what lost. Anyway, let's not go down that road right <laughs> that's, now. That's going to be a whole season I, on its own. Yes, but I will say, Jason, this is a phenomenal choice. Simply because I also had this soundtrack and um, it was really interesting because when I found this movie and the soundtrack, I it was the late 90s and I was in the 80s. I was listening to Depeche Mode, Duran Duran, The Cure, like that was my heavy rotation. So when The Wedding Singer came out and that soundtrack had so many jams that I don't typically hear and it introduced me to a whole bunch of new 80s music that I still listen to this day. And so I am unbelievably happy that you brought this up because I think The Wedding Singer is a phenomenal movie and the soundtrack uh, is just, I remember having it on CD and playing it non-stop for like two years straight. And obviously Drew Barrymore, I just, she hurt. I hurt her. She's so good. It's perfect. Yeah. For sure. I think that's the list. I think we all came up with some really interesting choices here. Some completely epitomizing the the genre itself. Some completely off the beaten path, which is fantastic. It's the beauty of uh, having three very unique individuals come together and chat about this. But I think this was a really great conversation to start off our second season. But let's open it up if there's any additional honorable mentions here in the romantic comedy genre. By all means, throw them out there. My only ro- recommend or sorry, mention honorable mention is going to be. For the 18, uh, 1989 movie, Chances Are, starring Sybil Shepard and Robbie Downey Jr., simply because of the song, After All, which by Cher and Peter Cetera. I sang it last night at karaoke, and it was in uh, memory of this episode. So, honorable mention to Cher and Peter Cetera from Chances Are. Excellent. <laughs> Are, are we going to walk away from this without talking about Clueless at all? Because, <sighs> I mean, you know, mm. it, it was... It was a, a very special soundtrack in our earlier episodes, but man, I mean, you know that it, it's also just a really good example of the use of uh, licensed music in a uh, film, and 
you know, a <laughs> a rom-com that has some weird sort of vibes to it in retrospect. Yeah. You know, I mean, um, but hey, you know, whether you're potentially almost related to somebody or not, I, I, hey, I'm no judgment. Um, <laughs> Listen, I'm just going to say that Clueless was into the step-brother-sister porn before it became mainstream. <laughs> so it was so ahead of its time that it didn't even know that was going to be popular. Right? <laughs> right? Um, but no, also just, uh, uh, as we've already established before, a great soundtrack. Um, Agreed. And a, a fun film to watch. For sure. I don't think I've got anything else. I know, Jason, you mentioned kind of drifting just outside of our time frame that we were looking at. You talked about um, maybe going without mentioning Scott Pilgrim versus the world, which I think is a really great, fun, nerdy, modern take on romantic comedies and doing some really interesting things there. I mean, I don't know if there's a person among us here between the three who doesn't like who doesn't love Scott Pilgrim, but it's a fantastic movie and definitely something that uh, has a little bit of fun with the genre for sure. So definitely an honorable mention there. And of course there's the classics that you can get into. There's your sleepless in Seattle's and you've got males go ahead and, and watch so those, which are just kind of the, the Tom Hanks sort of oeuvre of, of romantic comedies. But if you haven't watched it, definitely go back and watch Joe versus the volcano. Really fun Tom Hanks, oh, Meg Ryan, their first outing together. Yes. And then they got into the, the next two romantic comedies. So Joe Va versus the Volcano will be my uh, honorable mention here on this podcast. Nice. Good choice. Mm -hmm. But I think that's going to do it for us here. I think we are going to wrap it up there and say it's good to be back. Uh, it's nice to be here in our first episode of our second season. It's nice to see you guys and talk again. Uh, it, the break was nice. Don't get me wrong. The editing was nice to not have to do for such a period of time. But we came off such a good high with our, our summer masterclass series. I was really itching to get back to talk to you guys. And we are, I think, right back up there, if not better than where we were. We are on fire with this episode. So thank you very much to you both for being here. Thank you. And it was tons of fun to uh, do this again. <laughs> yeah, happy to reconvene. Uh, you know, you can edit out all of my uh, my my dog's uh, boisterousness, uh, thankfully, because, you know, you have uh, you'll have my recording. But yeah, it's great to uh, to work with you guys again on this. And I'm just excited about for what we have planned for this season. For sure. We do encourage you to let us know what you think. What do you think about our new take on the season section or the season structure, our uh, romantic comedy uh, chat here? We, of course, want you to interact with us on our very active social media accounts. You can go and find us on Instagram or Twitter at EvenTheScorePod. And of course, what we want you to do is to make sure that you are getting our show out and recognized on your podcasting app of choice. If you listen to us via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, however you're going to listen to the show make sure you rate and review our show subscribe share our episodes the more that we get it out there the better this podcast is going to be and we really appreciate it there uh, if you wanted to email the show go ahead and let us know what you're thinking via our email address even the score podcast at gmail.com i think that'll do it for us today here at even the score thank you very much for listening take care I mean, it's not just about boners.